Welcome to the Road to Open Science podcast, your guide on everything open at Utrecht University and beyond. Today we'll be speaking with Robin Koch and Eiko Fried about what personal data relics, the parent company of Elsevier and, for example, Mendeley, stores about you. But first, in our previous episode, we already mentioned that my co-host Sunli was taking a leave of absence and we were looking for new hosts. And we found one, a very enthusiastic one, Kaspar van Lissa. Kaspar, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sikko. And could you please perhaps enlighten us how you got drawn into the open science movement and what your role is within it? Absolutely. So I was educated in social psychology before the Diederik Stapel affair happened. So my education was in p-hacking and in telling a good story <laughs> above doing good science. And then when I graduated, this replication crisis hit. So it was very hard to find work in that sector. So oh, I transitioned yeah. to different fields of science. First, developmental psychology, where I got a pretty good statistical education, but uh, my work was not yet open. Then I moved to family sociology, a postdoc, where I got kind of obsessed with reproducible code. So much so that I started uh, writing my own code and working on something called the workflow for open reproducible code in science. And... This way, I trained myself to become a methodologist and applied for a position as assistant professor methodology and statistics at our university in Utrecht, which is where I am ah. currently. And then I started publishing about these workflows for open reproducible science. And I um, became faculty ambassador for the open science community. And now I'm going out of that role and transitioning into a co-chair of the open science community Utrecht together with uh, Sander van der Laan. So I'm quite committed to open science. I teach a lot of pre-conference workshops and other kinds of workshops about this around the world. Cool. Well, it's very good to have somebody so deeply ingrained into the open science movement here on our podcast. And actually, going back to the very first thing you said, I never realized, but was it really that much of a shock uh, that the so to the social sciences that it was hard to find a job in those days? I think so. And in fact, the people wow. who graduated just a few years or one or two years before me, uh, some of them were wondering if they were able to even get their PhDs because they had been collaborating with Diederik Stapel. So it was really oh. a field in disarray at that point, And it really felt kind of like uh, the economic crisis that we had just emerged from was at that point hitting so, uh, social psychology as a field, a similar kind of experience. And so then, do you think the field has re-emerged as a phoenix rising from the ashes then? Oh, absolutely. At this point, I think that the field of social psychology is kind of a guiding beacon for open science practices. A lot of solutions have been developed by colleagues from that field. A lot of solutions were first implemented by colleagues in that field. Uh, so now, nowadays, we are taking our cues from them. All right. So today you you um, invited the speakers yeah. to talk about what Relics is collecting in terms of information on you. How did you get to their topic? So it's something that I've been aware of for a very long time. And it, this topic has been blowing up around social media and newspapers in recent weeks. But I kind of assumed that everybody already knew that Elsevier was not just a company that sells our own research back to us, but that's also a company that is really hungry for researchers' data, tries to 
infiltrates or integrate itself into all different aspects of a, a researcher's life and their relationship with their employer. Um, and I thought, maybe naively, that our universities were aware of this deal and were happily playing along with it. Until we had a faculty open science team meeting where our dean said, this was in the news today, I wasn't aware that, for example, publications entered in Pure are directly uploaded to the cloud that belongs to Relics, Elsevier's parent company. Should we do something about this? And I think, yes, perhaps we should do something about this. Yeah. Well, we'll get to talking about that later on during our interview with uh, Eiko and, uh, and Robin. But first, as you know, the first thing we should do on this podcast is go to the newsy news. That's right. And I'll start you guys off with some news from across the pond, which is on the Higher Educational Leadership Initiative on Open Scholarship. And yes, it comes with a nice little acronym called HELIUS, which is a huge collaboration in the United States of 60 plus universities now, including the former employer of our minister, Robert Dijkgraaf, who are binding together in uh, uh, connecting their open science and reward and recognition goals. A quite major in, uh, happening, I think, actually, that didn't get a lot of attention here in the Netherlands. Oh, absolutely. As our listeners undoubtedly are aware, Utrecht University has set itself up to be a world leader in terms of open science practices. And one of their ambitious goals is that they want to transition to fully open access publishing. Now, on the 24th of May, our library's publishing support team is organizing the second meeting in a discussion series, Publishing in Transition, and they will discuss the challenges and progress in terms of transitioning to fully open access. Yes, I'll be there. Will you be there? Uh, I'm not sure if I will be there, actually. I think I'm on a short <laughs> holiday. <laughs> but if anyone cool. wants to get, get your signature, this is their opportunity. Well, it's a nice, nice moment to get together and chat and uh, meet each other. Uh, yes, and also uh, coming up in June the 23rd is a this session is in Dutch but will later be uh, held in English again. It's called Wetenschappers in the Publieke Arena and it's a whole session about public engagement in this case specifically on how you can see public engagement and apply it in a team session uh, in a team fashion. So really work together on making your research and education stick to a general public or actually preferably to specific publics, and how to go about that. So the 23rd of June for anybody at Utah University, so that support and academic stuff. And finally, I want to bring it really close to home and give a quick shout out to our Department of Methodology and Statistics at the Faculty of Social and Behavioral Sciences. They uh, control a lot of the research software that is being used for statistical education in all of the different educational programs of that faculty. And they've committed to transition to open source research software. And what I'm very excited about is that next week, the transition team, which is spearheaded by Professor Herbert Hoytink, is presenting their proposal for this transition. So at this point, we don't quite know what that proposal will be, but it is expected that most courses will be using JASP, which is developed collaboratively between different universities, most notably University of Amsterdam and our university, as a drop-in replacement for SPSS. It's kind of a Playmobil version. I've used it in education for high school students. It's very easy to use intuitively. And for some more advanced courses and electives, we may use R instead. So I'm very excited to hear that proposal. 
Yes, and as a child of SPSS, I really am enthusiastic about this move. <laughs> For sure. And maybe some national news. Uh, very recently, the Royal Academy of Science, which has a council on social sciences, published a very nice set of tips for people wanting to make societal impact. It's called Wetenschap met de ramen wijd open. It's a publication that I'll put in the show notes, just like everything else we're mentioning today. And it draws on 10 important lessons on how to make impact. And I think one of the most important things uh, that's being stated in this uh, communication by the Royal Academy is that this work is academic work and not something nice to have, but a need to have. Uh, but it actually has a couple of very valuable lessons, I think. Sikko, you already mentioned one opportunity where our listeners can come meet you in person. I will give them a second one, which is the Open Science Festival, which will be organized on September 1st at VU University Amsterdam. And maybe some of our listeners have already submitted proposals for workshops. That deadline has now closed, but you can, of course, still register as an attendant at opensciencefestival.nl. And then as a final note is uh, very relevant to today's topic and uh, is something that doesn't happen very often, namely that open access and open science make it into a national newspaper. But very recently there was a paper, uh, an opinion piece published by uh, Juliette Schaasma and Martijn van der Meer of Tilburg University on the transition that Elsevier is making from a publishing company to a data company. And their statement here is we're probably making the exact same mistake we made 20 years ago. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes as well uh, and encourage you to read it. And I think now it's time to move on to our interview. We're here with Aiko Fried and Robin Koch. Just for the listener's sake, uh, would you guys mind introducing yourself briefly? Let's start with Aiko. Hey, I'm Aiko Fried, Associate Professor at Leiden University in Clinical Psychology. I'm part of the open science community there, and I'm well happy to chat to you guys. Cool. And Robin? I'm uh, Robin Koch. I uh, used to be in academia, also in clinical psychology, which is uh, a coincidence. Um, and I am now in uh, a commercial company in occupational health services in an R&D department. And in a band. And in several <laughs> bands. Cool. And so one question we always ask at the top of our podcast to all of our guests is what drew you into open science initially? And then let's start with Robin again. Well, I think... Starting my studies in psychology, uh, I think the default position was open science. And then when you start working in academia, you kind of get drawn out of open science because you come in with scientific ideals and you think, well, this is how it should be. And we're all very scientific and open and transparent. And then you get a job in academia and you find out, hang on, it's not as open and transparent as I thought it would be in science. And then there's for some people, there's a transition back into open science. And for some people, well, there isn't. There's a transition out. Yeah. And I, I, made, the, I made the opposite experience. I did my PhD at least for the first two years in Germany, in Berlin. And um, the cluster was very well funded and, and very interdisciplinary. And I had many classes, but open science or sharing data or code was not a thing back then at all. Uh, nobody talked about that. I went to the US for one and a half years as part of my PhD. And there uh, in a social psychology group, actually, I learned a little bit about the replication crisis and, and all the problems. And then after my PhD, I started working at the intersection of clinical and methods. And 
yeah, it was very obvious 2014-15 that there was no open science happening in clinical psychology or very, very little. And that the replication crisis that we had in, in social psych, for example, was also looming for us in a, like a Democrat sword in, in clinical psychology. And um, yeah, I thought it was very obvious early on to share data and code as much as, as, much as I could and certainly made mistakes in the beginning. But uh, that's, that's how I got interested in the whole enterprise. Right. Yeah. And you guys are here today because, well, you unearthed something, something some people might find disturbing, which was a couple of tweets and then a blog post and then uh, half of the world, I think, read it. And uh, just to briefly tease what you, uh, what you found was that a certain publisher slash data company was keeping track of personal data, including your bank accounts. And I'm wondering, Robin, have you changed your bank account yet? <laughs> I don't even know how to do that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, it wasn't, I don't think it was my bank account. It was ICOs, but but still, there was a lot of data in there that I wonder, how did they get it and how do I get it out of there? So what we really like about you guys' story is that this week, everybody is talking about data, data brokerage by Elsevier, but you guys have a personalized tail behind it, right? You both submitted data access requests so you could see what kind of metadata and personal data they collected on you. But I'm actually interested to know what came before that. How does one decide to take the step to submit a data access request? Well, it started with a series of tweets that I did after I did a subject access request, which is your right as an EU citizen under uh, GDPR. And it started when, um, at some point at my previous university, I got a whole bunch of those spam emails saying, esteemed professor, we are in a windfall of articles, blah, 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 you know. Um, and you just you throw them away. And at some point I thought, hey, some of these uh, emails don't actually have several spelling errors in the title. <laughs> What's going on here? They appear to be written by an actual human and not a bot. And I was looking at it and I thought, wait, this is an Elsevier journal. These are supposed to be the professional guys, right? So I thought, mm, maybe this is a one-time um, screw-up of some kind of database. I threw away the email, and then more and more and more kept coming. And then I was wondering, hey, I'm, I'm not subscribed to the Journal of Microfiltration and Rubber Treatment <laughs> Analytics or whatever. Who is? <laughs> and I, Who is? Well, apparently I was. Uh, and I thought, how does this happen? Because I'm pretty sure I didn't subscribe to this. Um, and I thought, hang on. Let's do a subject access request because I know that through GDPR I have the right to get this information. I was just wondering, okay, I know that I used Elsevier products in the past, like Mendeley, for example, and I was partly annoyed and partly curious trying to see what do they know of me and, and can I get it out of there because they're supposed to be a proper company, so they should honor my request to get the data out of there. So I did. And um, my, my request number was something uh, very low, I think 00036 or something. Uh, I'm not sure if they start anew every year. It doesn't look like it. And they, within the, the, the legal limits, they sent me an email back and I got a PDF with a whole bunch of data. And I tweeted about that and people were, of course, shocked. And then Aiko uh, said, hey, this is interesting. We should do something about this. And he also did a subject access request. Uh, he got even more data out. Uh, they had more data on him. 
That's uh, absolutely fascinating. So, Aiko, at this point, you got involved in this story. And could you tell us a little bit about how that got started for you? I mean, I guess every listener of this podcast knows the story of the tell and tale of academic publishing. I, I don't need to expand on this too much, but it's been upsetting to me for a long time what's happening there. Because I don't think in the end this is good for rigorous and robust science, what we're doing right now, or what we have been doing for quite some time, right? If you were an academic setting up the system of publishing, this is not what you would do. And uh, I've, be, I've been talking uh, to Robin about this today for quite some time. Imagine there was a company building the roads, and for some reason it got the privilege and monopoly to build a third of all roads or something in Europe, right? But the roads aren't actually built by people working for the company. The roads are built by taxpayers working other jobs. The way that I'm, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just bizarre. And then this company sells the roads back to the society in the way that I'm working my butt off as an academic, right? I'm getting paid by taxpayer money. I'm submitting papers. I just checked the Elsevier APC website before the call. They charge um, up to $9,900 for open access fees for a paper. And um, still, most of these journals are hybrid, of course, right? They will not only charge you for open access, they will also charge you simultaneously, your university library. And then, yeah, they settled back to us. And, and so that's been really upsetting for me. I've been writing about this. It's one of the core reasons I've joined the open science community. Um, I think this is bad for science. And um, so when I saw Robin's tweets about uh, them collecting personal data, in addition to this, um, plus the fact that I've been using software like Mendeley for years and years, I was curious how my own data dump would look like. Um, I've been interested in surveillance and so forth and these topics for quite some time privacy is really important i think in a modern functioning democracy and um yeah i did the uh, the same request that robin did motivated by his work uh, i got a bunch more data i think not only because um, i had used mendeley perhaps a little more i think also my request was a couple of weeks or maybe two months later than robin's and i it seemed like they had updated their procedures Robin got a, a PDF that was really not machine readable in any way. At least I got an editable uh, Excel file mm. um, with multiple tabs. They also looked sort of haphazardly copied from some other document, perhaps, or like a weird data dump. They were, it was certainly not a clean document, but it was at least an Excel file that you could sort of easily transfer, copy, reuse, and so forth. Yeah. And, and let's get to Mendeley, because I vividly remember that starting my PhD in 2012, I thought this is a nice open source program that can help me read my PDFs and be a little bit better than a reference manager, so I can make annotations, etc. And then, like, in the, in the quiet of the night, this was bought by Elsevier and I don't think a lot of people knew. I only found out when I started journalism in 2016 that it had been bought and around the time of the GDPR or as in Dutch we say it, AVG was introduced all of a sudden the like the operability with Mendeley where you could actually like look behind the scenes of what the program was doing etc that was blocked because of the GDPR and we were all like, hmm, what's happening here? But then, of course, one shouldn't necessarily be suspicious of everything. But then you guys did this data pool. You found a lot of things. And I'm really wondering, what was to you personally the most shocking thing you found? Just the sheer volume of information for me. It's actually hard to count. I didn't find an easy script to count cells that are non-empty in Excel documents. But there, are, there have to be over 650,000 cells of data just in wow. this one Excel tab on me from Mendeley. 
going back, not going back all the way um, to when I started started using the software, which was about the time you started losing uh, using it, um, Siko, for the same reasons. But um, yeah, when I, I it, I mean, we can talk about this in detail later. Um, about the problem that it's not clear to me exactly what data they have on me, but they know what data they have on me because it's sort of it's not in, it's not decrypted or encrypted, but it's sort of in code in, in, in parts, as we have shown in the blog post. Um, but it appears as if they log when I add a paper, um, when I tag a paper, when I open the software, for example, which is super problematic because it allows them to track, for example, if I'm on vacation, perhaps, because I might not open the software for three months or three weeks, <laughs> for that matter. Um, and yeah, yes, that's, that's and privacy intrusive. And often with these things, uh, you, you hear these warnings of people saying, well, it's problematic that people uh, that, that these companies want to know this. But like a little bit before that question, I always have this question, why on earth is it interesting to them? Is this some kind of a, doesn't it really matter and they just want to record everything to find out later how they can use it? Or do you think there's a strategy or some kind of goal behind this? I'm not sure if there is a definitive strategy or goal, but, you know, Elsevier bills itself no longer as we publish scientific stuff. They are a, a data analytics company right now. And if you look at the type and uh, the sort of um, uh, software types and platforms that they've acquired over the past few years, you can see that they're trying to get a foothold in every step of scientific publishing. Um, there's a nice uh, a write-up from uh, Björn Brems uh, about this, where it just clearly shows that from A to Z, they, they want to have uh, a, a finger in the pie, so to speak. And the more data they have, the more data they can combine um, the more power they have. And that power grows exponentially with the amount of data that they have. So this is kind of fascinating, right? Because many of us open science-minded scientists already disliked Elsevier because of the way, well, the roads metaphor, they sell our own research back to us. But now they've developed a new business model where we are the pro product. And that feels very ominous. But I also wonder if both of you could address why, according to your opinion, is it a bad thing if Elsevier has this data? Well, why should they have the data in the first place, right? Like data minimization is one of the principles of GDPR. Um, and one of the things is, okay, so why is it relevant now in 2022, which Science Direct articles I opened way back in 2014? Why would you keep almost 10-year-old information like that? Um, and what are you going to do with it? And if you say we're just keeping it, we're not doing anything with it, why do you have it? I also think that collecting data costs money, right? It's not collecting data comes not without cost. It comes with storage costs. And yes, they might not be large, but if you collect data on, I don't know how many people, tens of millions of researchers in the world, even that data storage will cost money yeah. in 2022, even for Elsevier. And so, yeah, what are they going to do with this data? Um, what are the plans? I would like to know that. And we've had many, many cases where people are told, uh, but if you're not doing anything evil, you have nothing to hide. And history has shown that this was incorrect in many cases. And do they have a right to collect data without letting us know what they intend to use it for? I would say no, but I'm not a legal scholar. And uh, hence our call in the blog post and elsewhere to get people together on this who are actually privacy scholars 
um, both in Dutch and European and international law, um, because it's unclear to me exactly what they're allowed to do. And you might have seen that today, actually, in the NRC, in response to the, the paper we talked about previously, uh, very briefly, they um, published a short rebuttal in which they, in my opinion, don't really uh, tackle any of the, yeah. the points that were raised previously. But yeah, they probably have enough lawyers to do things that are probably reasonably legal. Yeah. It doesn't make it okay, in my opinion. But Yeah, so here we come to this, I think, uh, important but not necessarily perfect distinction between tracking metadata and research data like that is collected in pure that uh, Juliette Schaasma and Martijn van der Meer, whose article we mentioned at the top, is referring to. And what you're actually looking at is this personal data and they're they're both sides of the same coin and they go through the same set of uh, software uh, that it, that is to keeping track of research. But in a way, isn't it like under the GDPR, if, if you've at one point clicked OK on the storage of this data, aren't you in the clear as a company? Well, you could, you could uh, raise the argument that if I have to use Pure uh, by my employer, who is a university... Is that consent then freely given? Mm -hmm. Because um, uh, my professor is going to tell me, you need to put your stuff in pure because that's just how we do stuff. Am I in a position to say no? No, that's probably a bad idea. And then you have to enter pure and have to put all your information in that. And that might not per se have some very interesting personal information. But if in some back end they combine that with a private mobile phone number that you had to give in to some two-factor authentication platform, some other Elsevier, they, they will just combine that information because apparently they have it. The, the data dump they sent me uh, had at least one private email address and two private mobile phone numbers. Again, why do they have this? And, and also how, again, but do you have any idea? On how? They, I must have input it somewhere at some point. I attended a, a conference that was organized by Elsevier at some point. Well, you're not going to say, well, it's, it's, I can't go to this conference. I had to present there for my PhD. So I had no choice but to just give my phone number. And if you're signing up for a conference and there's a mandatory field that says uh, mobile phone number, well, are you going to run to the head of department and say, can you please give me a free mobile phone and a mobile phone plan because I need it for work? Um, we, we've all had difficult budget discussions probably at some mm -hmm. point. Mobile phones aren't handed out like candy at university. And I'm sure you were not aware that eight years down the road, your university would make a software mandatory to uh, you know, store your, your papers internally or something for reporting purposes that then would be able to combine a user ID with your user ID eight years ago and match your private phone number. It's also something like, what are we consenting to? What information do we have to be able to consent to this? And adding to this, there's this idea in data science and has been around for 30, 40 years, that at some point, if a company gathers a magical threshold of data on you, they can predict the future of the stock market or something like that. And I don't know if that's true or not, and I don't particularly care, but it is certain that the more information on, on a person you have, the more you can market that, right? That's how AI works. We want information. And Elsevier has been pernicious in getting embedded into all systems. I saw a tweet today. I haven't verified this, but somebody tweeted at me just before the podcast that they bought or they want to buy ResearchFish, the, this um, 
I think a UK organization that was in the media recently for some uh, bad PR on Twitter. And um, I, I read the sort of uh, Elsevier's notion of intent to purchase this. And yes, it fits right in, trying to understand the academic life cycle. What are we doing? Um, what is our every step? Trying to embed um, the software into yeah, every part of what we're doing, because that makes the data more valuable, because you yeah. can combine more information across people. Yeah. What, what of course, makes this, uh, this topic specifically uh, a difficult thing to address is that it's, in a way, only a very small part of academic life. And it's also something you need to sort of have an understanding of in order for you to be outraged, surprised, baffled, just give it a <laughs> give it a word. So what I'm actually wondering is what is the response of your direct and less direct colleagues on this? Are they like, is this something you talk about during your lab meetings or that comes up during a board discussion of the faculty or is it something that still nobody really cares about? So I'm not going to point fingers because my bank account is in this data dump, right? And it is combinable with my personal email address and a phone number and a lot of other information about my holiday time potentially or other things. Why is that in there? Well, because Elsevier once paid me $55 for a statistical review for a journal, which I accepted, and which was stupid in hindsight. I should have donated the money instead or, or asked them to, to do something else. But it felt like that I was like, oh, wow, they're going to pay 50 bucks at least. At least somebody's paying me something for this time I'm donating. Right? <laughs> yeah. And of course, under, under European law, they're required to store the data for seven years. They're just doing what they need to do here with my bank account. Totally understandable. Um, but the combination of me donating my bank account to Elsevier and they're utilizing it in combination with other data is the problem here. Yeah. So, Siko, you asked if this is being uh, discussed at different levels. And I can at least vouch for the fact that in our faculty open science uh, team meeting, it was discussed as a problem. And it, people will also look into alternatives that do not give away so much data. So at this point, we've talked about a lot of practices that we are uncomfortable with. And one thing that still needs to happen is that some of our open science minded uh, legal colleagues should get involved and see if everything that's happening here is okay or not. But um, Eiko already mentioned that Elsevier published a rebuttal to at least one of the criticisms that, that has been leveled at them in recent weeks. And um, if we analyze this rebuttal, what is you guys' impression of what exactly they're saying? What are they admitting to? What are they rebuffing? Uh, maybe, Robin, you have an opinion about that? Yeah, when I read it, I had to think about uh, Richard Nixon, who said, I am not a crook. <laughs> um, and that's basically all they're doing. They're saying, we, we work within the law. Also, we don't install spyware. That's it. Actually, if you go to the Elsevier website and you look at uh, the uBlock origin, you can see all kinds of Adobe tracking uh, software in there. But it, it rebuts absolutely nothing, I think. It just says, well, uh, we're not evil. Trust us. We work within the confines of the law, which totally doesn't say anything about intent, motivation or ethics around what they're doing. I mean, it's a, it's a very carefully, probably PR-crafted communications thing that they put out, but it, it doesn't, it's, it's nothing. It's a lot of words, but there's no substance to it. Indeed, and if you turn any of these sentences around, the opposite is always, we are breaking the law. Yeah, of course they're not uh, saying that, right? And, and I cannot determine if they do, but that's, that's PR language. If, if you can turn any language into the, any word into the opposite, and it means we're breaking the law, then all you're saying is we're like, 
operating within the bounds of the law. Of course, you're going to put that in a newspaper because putting the opposite in would be very, very weird. That's a really good way to put it. So all of these are just harmless statements that say we are not currently violating the law and saying anything else would be confessing to a crime. And then I'm also interested in the tense that they use because they say we do not sell personal data to third parties, which says nothing indeed about their intent to do so in the future. But there's also the emphasis on uh, third parties. But uh, Elsevier is a big mega corporation like Relix is their uh, is their parent company are they third parties who is a third party in this in the first place so if they just send all the data to Relix uh, who has even more companies um, are they allowed mm -hmm. to do that I don't know they don't specify so really the basic question here is if Relix would have sent a rebuttal to the newspaper could they actually have stated the same or they might already have the ability in-house to make sufficient profit from these data without selling onward to third parties. Good point. It's also important to tie these companies together in their communication. At least one of the emails I received after doing my data access request had the Relics logo in the email response. Um, so they certainly also pool. I, I'm sure they have different privacy officers, but also they pool communication. And at least my data request, while it was handled by Elsevier, I guess, uh, was signed by somebody with the Relix logo. So, but also the idea I got uh, is because uh, uh, the data dump that that Ico got was quite different from the one that I got. And after my series of tweets, many people tried to get uh, a data request, and a lot of them actually got error messages and said, "Well, I can't reach the page, or the page looks different than what it does, or the the fields look different." So. I guess that after I actually did that first uh, access request and peop other people started doing it, I think somewhere some alarm bell went off and I thought, hey, uh, people are doing this now and our processes are just not optimized to do this. We need to look into this. Yeah, but you, do you think it was automated or do you think there was some editorial hand somewhere? I'm pretty sure it was done by hand, to be honest. Same. Um, the, the emails that I got are probably boilerplate. Um, but I think it was a manual thing uh, because the PDF that I got looked like it was a PDF made from an Excel sheet while Ico got the complete Excel sheet. But also put together, like we do data dumps all the time in my project uh, or my projects and Excel files, our Excel, they were also formatted, like there were orange things in there and there were some cells that were larger than others and it looked really hand formatted and, and sort of multiple, they had like eight or nine tabs, I think, in my Excel file. But each tab contained more than one table of information, if you will. They were copied onto each other and so forth. So definitely manual. Sounds like they have the very best data scientists on the case. <laughs> okay. So I think we know how you got into this. We sort of scoped out the problem. Let's work towards a potential solution. Because we've seen a lot of things happen over the years. We've seen, at least during the negotiations on uh, on the open access and publishing, we've seen boycotts. We've seen people abstaining from the, taking the contract. We've seen open letters. We've seen a lot of things. Uh, but maybe let's, let's start right at home. So if you're a researcher and you're uh, worried about this, what can you do to begin with? Can you move to an alternative or are there any paths of action for you? So I'm just going to start with the reference manager because it's my own experience. I switched from Mendeley to Zotero recently. Um, you guys know that Mendeley made this very, very difficult. They encrypted their database. They made it hard to export uh, the PDFs that are marked up. 
but uh, Zotero found a nice way. I don't want to call it a hack, but you can simply log in, in through Zotero into your Mendeley database. Um, and then you can get everything out of Mendeley into Zotero. For people who uh, are listening here, Zotero is free to use, um, the, at least the basic features. It's um, by an, uh, it's not an on NGO, but it's run by a for-profit. So these are trustworthy people. I don't get money to say this, by the way. I'm not, not even a t-shirt or a mug, unfortunately. Nothing Zotero. Um, <laughs> and uh, there are licenses that you need if you want to cloud sync your PDFs. I have 12,000 PDFs. And so at that level, you need a license that costs a couple of, of dollars per year. And just today, actually, I reached out and I sent a long email to my librarians and my privacy officer to ask whether uh, Leiden University would be willing to acquire a license because if the university does it, it's a, and you get 200 accounts or something, it's a lot cheaper than if all of us do that individually. So that's a concrete step all that you can take. Yeah. And of course, I'm sure there are other reference managers that are open source and, and amazing, but uh, Mendeley ain't one of them. Do you want to add to that, Robin? Yeah, I think the problem is that Elsevier is so pervasive is that uh, on the one hand, they, they tuck into every aspect of academic writing and publishing, but that also gives you leverage to change things at every one of those, I'm sure some disgusting board meeting calls them value or revenue streams. Um, I think the most important step for me was uh, no longer publishing or reviewing or editing for Elsevier because that is that is just free tax money for them. Um, so I would encourage anyone who thinks that uh, these are reprehensible business tactics to just... Uh, decline those review requests and uh, no longer send papers there and talk to other people about this because there are perfect alternatives for any journal you can imagine uh, and it doesn't have to be an Elsevier one. And at some point we need to step up and face the fact that, okay, uh, another journal that has some less reprehensible business tactics might have a lower impact factor, but uh, that's just a price we pay for uh, doing good science. Yeah. And and here you sort of walk into the uh, the problem that looks like where your clothing is made. Like maybe some other company says they're they're doing it better, but how on earth would we know? Aren't most publishing data companies becoming data companies anyway? Aren't they doing the same thing? This is something I hear the listeners ask out loud in their headphones right now. I mean, you can see that many journals are published by societies, and in my field, at least the APA. It's not a great society. There are many problems there, you know, <laughs> but um, it's not Elsevier. And so in these societies, people like us can have a voice, right? We can be in the boards, we can be elected to, to be president of these societies. Um, it's uh, not all of them are for profit. So I encourage you to read up on your, in your society, in your field of, of academia. There are usually a couple of them. They run a couple of journals and some of them are better and some of them are worse. But um, it's probably better to pay these societies, um, especially if they're nonprofits or or even NGOs or something like that, compared to um, Elsevier or or Springer or all the other big big companies with their bizarre revenues every year. Yeah, let's just uh, focus on the fact that we're not really singling out Elsevier. It's an easy target because they're one of the biggest ones, but there are many many big publishing corporations out there that that if given the chance, they would probably do exactly the same that Elsevier is doing right now. 
And what about um, other aspects that may be perhaps more difficult to change at the individual level? For example, productivity tracking. It was already mentioned before. Uh, I think, Robin, you brought up Pure. Many of us are mandated by universities to keep an up-to-date record of all of our scientific output there. And I've asked my line manager at some point, listen, my Google Scholar is up-to-date. Why can we not just use that? Um, do you think that it would be helpful to change this as well, for example? I think it's a bottom-up and top-down process at the same time, right? Like open science. We need all grassroots movements and I need every every person, be it a bachelor student or somebody else, to be involved and, and care and understand what the problems are and work towards solutions on the individual level and convince their master's students and their PhDs and their postdocs, right? But look at what influence funders have in the world. Look at the Wellcome Trust in the UK, which is a huge funder in my field of clinical psychology. Look at the NWO that has sort of a monopoly of funding in the Netherlands, sadly, but it's good for, for structural reform, right? They said, you know, PhD projects, if you want to be funded by us, why don't you share your data with everybody? And and suck, we had lots of open data in the Netherlands. So I would really call on the funders here. I mean, it can be lots of happening at the university level and other society levels, but if funders like the NIH and others get behind this and understand the pernicious system in which we are, and that they are wasting taxpayer money, they're they're wasting their own money on the system, right? Um, then I think that, that is a necessary but not sufficient step towards reform here. Yeah, yeah, good point. So Elsevier offers a lot of services and it's very pervasive and some of those services are necessary. We already mentioned one good open source alternative, which is Zotero, which I also love. But, you know, for example, Google Scholar, it's a great output tracker, but it's certainly not transparent. And Google is also data in the business of data brokerage. So which areas, in your opinion, need more attention in terms of infrastructure development? What tasks do we need to create an open source alternative for? I'm, I'm not sure because there are so many tasks in the workflow and Elsevier has so successfully uh, uh, weakened its way into uh, all those tasks. I would say that right now the, the primary driver of everything is the publishing business itself the for-profit scientific publishing, because that is the ultimate goal, more or less, of all the science we do these days, even though that sounds uh, kind of sad. Um, and that is also the primary revenue stream for Elsevier. So if you want to hit them where it hurts the most, then I would guess it's over there. And um, I, I posted a, a, a not entirely serious tweet at some point a few years back where I said, hey, if we just take all the money that we sent to Elsevier in, in article processing charges and use that to buy Relics stock, how long would it take until we actually own Relics as a company? And someone did the maths on that, and I think it was, um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name, but I'm sure you'll put it in the show notes. And he said, hey, we can do this in five or six years. We can actually own this company if we just buy all the stock. That's amazing. I have some colleagues that already started, but I try to discourage them from buying any more Relic stock. Well, you can see in, for example, big companies like like uh, Shell PLC, they have activist shareholders and they are actively trying to influence uh, uh, the course of this company. That's a good point. And for buying these things up, keep in mind, these are just the costs that, uh, that we're paying, like literally paying, like dollars that change hands. And that doesn't take into account all the costs that we that we incur as taxpayers by paying back that by paying to pay our own work and paying and buying back our papers. Like, I university my university has to pay money so that my colleagues can read my work legally. 
it's so bizarre. And then if you add these costs, I'm sure we can get there in less than six years. So this has all been very, very interesting and very revealing. Um, we will put all these things in the show notes, of course, that you've mentioned as uh, uh, alternatives and uh, nice uh, sources, etc. But I'm also really wondering, did this this can't just end with a blog post and a podcast, right? What is it? What is up next for you guys? Uh, firstly, we intend to write a paper and publish it in an Elsevier journal. <laughs> uh, yeah, or, or perhaps not. But uh, we we don't really have any any a lot of time to to devote on this uh, as important as important as it is. So it would be really great, and we're talking to some other people um, of maybe uh, getting it into several different levels. Uh, maybe uh, get a politician involved because this is tax money after all, and at some point they are liable for the tax money that is spent. There's some grassroots stuff you can do, like just making people aware of, of that entire stream that they dominate. Uh, but maybe some investigative journalism would also be cool, something like Follow the Money in the Netherlands. Uh, and they are very well known for being good journalists with thorough research who are not afraid to, to start digging where it, uh, where it hurts. You're uh, so very, that, well, that very good ideal. at seducing them. <laughs> Echo, you have anything to add? Yeah, similar to Robin, I think it's just really important to connect pockets here, right? Many people are thinking about this in academia, but also outside. I would encourage all of you to talk to your librarians at your university. I've learned so much from talking to them. They really care. They know a lot about open science. They know a lot about privacy. Um, my privacy officer knows a lot about these topics as well. University lawyers know about, about these topics. So... For me, it's helpful to talk to these people because sometimes I feel gaslighted by the publishing industry. Everybody around pretends me this is normal, and I'm like, N but it doesn't. It doesn't seem right, right? And so it's just good to talk to other people. I think we need to connect with each other and uh, keep building both bottom-up initiatives and top-down initiatives to try to um, yeah improve this. And this will be a long journey. Like Elsevier will be around for some time, but all of us can take small individual steps. And uh, all of us have some influence on the on the you know the higher ups in the university hierarchy and so forth. Well, thank you for those uh, encouraging words, encouraging us all to take action. Uh, Iko and Robin, it's been a pleasure having you on here, talking about your experience, and thank you for your activism. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Road to Open Science podcasts. The Road to Open Science is an initiative from the Utrecht Young Academy and supported by the Open Science Platform at Utrecht University. This episode was edited by me, Lieven Heremans. Please subscribe to the podcast feed to stay up to date.